I've been uh, given or allocated what is, <laughs> um, what is probably the most, or arguably one of the most difficult or contested portions of the entire Bible. Um, and, uh, and so before I begin, I want to just very broadly say um, that equally good and godly Christians who have looked at these things for many, many years, maybe spent their whole lives studying them, have come to vastly different conclusions, but they both still love Jesus um, and they're both godly Christians. So I don't want to be too dogmatic in what I'm saying to you this morning. However, I do want to deal with the text this morning as well. And uh, the text appears to say some very specific things about the end times. It speaks about some very specific realities that Jesus refers to and that are referred to repeatedly throughout the Bible. And so I don't want to be evasive in my discussion of it this morning. I want to be specific, but not dogmatic, if that's possible. And I want to be specific because sometimes what I think happens when we're looking at the return of Jesus is we almost talk about it in such general terms, partly because no one really wants the job of looking at the specifics because it's so kind of gnarly and at times confusing, that we keep the idea of Jesus coming again very general. Now, the issue with that, although obviously the key thing is that Jesus is coming again, that he is returning, is that, well, take church camp for an example. If you know that church camp is happening in the future, that we're going to church camp, and it is an idea that we're going to this place called church camp, then that's all very well and good. But until you start thinking about the specifics of that event, so maybe the fact that, um, I don't know, we're going to have a tournament that we normally have every year, which I tend to lose, um, the, fact, the fact that you know, we're going to have fish and chips, the fact that um, we're gonna, Adam's going to be teaching us on a specific chapter of the Bible, it almost doesn't seem real. And so what we tend to do, one of the dangers we can fall into when we're talking about these things is we refuse to talk about the specifics and we just say in general terms, Jesus is coming again. We make some very broad applications, um, you know, watch and pray and be ready. Um, And we've heard it before and somehow it doesn't seem real. The other danger we can fall into is that we can become overly dogmatic um, and we're sort of looking at the internet and we're identifying every American president as the Antichrist. Um, And that's not that's not terribly helpful. That's not terribly helpful either. But I think here that, that Jesus does reveal some specific things. You may not agree fully with what I'm going to say, and feel free to disagree. But we are going to look at this passage in quite a specific way um, at some realities. We can't be sure about the exact timings, but by looking at it in a specific way, we understand that there is a reality to these things and that they are shortly to come to pass, as the Bible says. And hopefully that will give us an urgency about these matters. One of the things we need to realise about the Bible as a book, so sometimes prophecy is seen as one of those areas which we want to avoid. Lots of Christians um, do avoid it. But we want to remember that the Bible is a book which is, not mainly, but has a huge amount of prophecy within it. So if you look at the Old Testament, of the 23,210 verses, 6,641 of those verses are prophetic in some way. That's over 28%. If you look at the New Testament, uh, of the 7,194 verses, 1,711 of those verses are predictive in nature. That's more than 21%. So the one thing we can't do is to bury our head in the sand over this. And the thing is that prophecy is not just 
Although it is fascinating because we all have an interest or a fascination with the future, mankind is very fascinated by the future, by how things will work out. You only have to go to the cinema and look at all the apocalyptic-themed movies and films. But not only does it kind of, um, in a sense, satisfy that thirst that we have to know about the end times, but it also talks about God himself. It speaks about the nature of how God reveals himself. In Isaiah, it says, in chapter 46, it says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not done yet, saying my counsel will stand and I shall do all my pleasure. See, One of the things Lauren, I don't know how many of you are here last week, but Lauren was talking to us about some apologetics. And one of the things about the first coming of Jesus is that some very specific promises and predictions were made in the Old Testament about Jesus' initial coming. So down to the fact where it says that they... um, you know, they, they, they divided my garments, they cast lots for my garments. It talks about Jesus specifically being pierced with a sword. And when we look at those things, it confirms to us that Jesus in his first coming fulfilled all of these promises perfectly. Now, just as in the same way in the first coming of Christ, there are specific promises, there are also specific promises relating to the second coming of Christ as well. So, and not only that with prophecy, the book of Revelation attaches a special blessing to those who want to, um, those who want to study the prophetic. There is a special blessing for you if you look into these matters. It says in the beginning of Revelation, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and those who keep the things which are written in it for the time is near. Blessed, blessed. So we don't want to be scared of prophecy. We can't dismiss prophecy, but we just have to handle these things accurately. So along with Revelation, Daniel, various other portions of the Old Testament, this portion in Matthew 24 is what we call eschatological in nature. Sounds like a big word, doesn't it? Which it is. But it means related to the end times, studies of the last things. So before we get into this passage and before we look at some of the specific realities which I want to look into um, in the middle part of this um, talk, um, what I want to do is to really provide you with some general questions to ask of this passage. You know, often questions bring clarity, don't they? So when you ask questions, they bring clarity. Sometimes they bring confusion. Um, But hopefully as we ask questions of this passage, it will bring clarity in our understanding of it. So the first question we want to ask, which should be on the screen, yeah, great, (laughs) is, is Jesus talking in this passage about past or future events? Or is Jesus primarily talking about past or future events. Now it's very clear as we look at the book of Matthew at this chapter in Matthew that Jesus is actually speaking about both to a certain extent. Everybody agrees that some of this is past. And I say that because one of the questions um, that Jesus initially asked was <clears throat> about the temple and about the temple being destroyed. We know that the temple was physically and literally destroyed in AD 70. It was destroyed in AD 70 when Titus, um, who was um, the future emperor, um, came into Jerusalem and the whole of the city was razed to the ground, decimated and destroyed. Um, Josephus, the historian, records this um, and we know that that literally happened in history. So we know that there is a historical element to this chapter. Now, some Christians, sorry, the, uh, sorry, I need a bit of water. <laughs> um, 
talking too much. Um, some Christians oh, would see that this entire um, that this entire uh, chapter was fulfilled historically. Um, and we would call those people preterists or preterists, depending on your, um, your um, interpretation. But basically they say that because the temple was destroyed historically in AD 70, that actually all of the rest of the events of this chapter are all historical in nature. They vary in whether they see the second coming of Jesus himself as historical so, so a preterist, a full preterist interpretation would see even the coming of Jesus as historical, if you can believe that. They would see that Jesus came again in AD 70 in judgment. He came in judgment in the form of the Romans to destroy the temple. So they would see this entire passage as, histor- as, as um, historical in nature. You also have a modified view of that called partial preterism, um, and they would see... Um, They would see everything apart from Jesus coming again as historical in nature. So they would say that um, the abomination of desolation, the tribulation period, all of that was associated with the events of AD 70 and that it's only the coming of the Son of Man which is is future. So, but when we look at this chapter... It seems apparent to me, it seems clear, again I don't want to be dogmatic, that there is a future element, there is a future part of this which is waiting to be fulfilled, which has not yet been fulfilled. We can tell that in very simple ways as we look down through the, the, the verses. If we look in verse 7, it seems to speak about, we know war is always a reality, but it seems as though there's an intensification of that, that globe, the, the, the conflict becomes global in nature. And that instead of merely local conflicts, you've got whole nations rising against other nations. You've got many false prophets. It talks in verse 11 and then in verses 23 to 24, you've got this unparalleled deception. And you have to ask yourself, by AD 70... How many false prophets had already arisen at that time? Think of all the false prophets who have arisen since that time. So it seems as though there's a future element uh, being discussed. Has the gospel been preached in all the world at this time? No. No, it hadn't been, had it? (laughs) Um, And also, if we look at the abomination of desolation... And that's one of the realities we're going to talk about in greater detail. We see that the abomination of desolation does not appear to have occurred during this time period. Um, And also we see in verse 29, we see these cosmic disturbances, disturbances in the heavens which seem to occur very uniquely and they too have not yet occurred. So the answer really to the first question is Yes, it's partly historical, but is Jesus talking primarily or or exclusively about historic events? We have to say no. Many of those events have not yet transpired, which means that they are future. And the second broad question we have to ask about this passage is, is Jesus actually referring to something specific or... Is he referring just to general trends which will occur throughout the ages, just in a very general view? Now, there are some Christians who would understand the passage in that way. Very good, uh, godly Christians, and in many ways, that view has much to commend it. It tends to be taken by those who, who, see, um, the, who see prophecy in more overall symbolic terms, and they would have a less literal view, um, particularly amillennialists. Um, and there's a guy from the States, quite a famous pastor, called Sam Storms, and he really says that the tribulation period here refers to realities which are present throughout the church age. Um, hopefully that quote is on the screen. Next. Sorry. Uh, No, maybe I forgot to put it on there. I don't know. Uh, But anyway, I'll read out what he says. He says, This period of unprecedented uh, tribulation between AD 66 and 70 
inaugurates or introduces a time of undetermined length during which tribulation will be prominent, during which also we are to alertly look for the second coming of Christ. This is the present age in which we live, called by Luke the times of the Gentiles. So in other words, some people believe Jesus is just talking about very generic realities which will be present. They'd also probably, interestingly, also say that we're also in the millennium at the same time. So although we're in a period of generic tribulation, we're also in a period where Jesus is already reigning. But look at verses 21 and 22 with me. It says, For then there will be a great tribulation, such as not been seen since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Now, to me, that suggests that this is going to be a specific, time-limited period of intensive and unprecedented persecution, which is going to break forth on the earth. And furthermore, if we look at many Old Testament passages, like the one here, it seems that the Old Testament, too, alludes to this time when there's going to be a very severe time of persecution, such that two-thirds of the population, it says, in this prophecy in Zechariah, two-thirds of it shall cut off and die. Um, So these very specific promises in both the Old Testament and the New Testament about a very specific time which is going to occur in the future. I think understanding that, the specifics of that, helps us to understand that Jesus' return is not just a nebulous kind of reality out there, but that the Bible prophesies specific events which will be associated with it. So that is question number two. Now here's the third question, and, and on this question we get in, into even more um, kind of complicated, um, slightly controversial territory, but I think it does make sense, and I think this interpretation, again I don't want to be dogmatic, but it best fits what's going on in this portion of scripture. And that question really is, is who are the group of people that this passage is primarily aimed at? Now, we have to understand, in one sense, it is Jesus' disciples, and we are all Jesus' disciples. So in one sense, I would say all of these things do apply to us in a broad sense. But there's also a sense in which it is specific, and it is made specific to a certain group of people. Now, the group of people, um, I believe it is specific to, or has a specific reference to, is the Jewish people, ethnic Israel, the Jewish nation. Now, why do I say that? Is that just something I'm coming up with? Well, I think we can see that for a few reasons as we look at the text itself. So in verse 15, it talks about the abomination of desolation. We're going to look at that in a bit more detail in a few moments. But the abomination of desolation is specifically referred to in a prophecy known as Daniel's 70 weeks, which has a specific application to the Jewish people. And then it it says that the abomination of desolation is going to stand in the holy place. Now, as Christians, as the church, do we have a holy place as such? The Bible says that Jesus has gone through entering the most holy and that through his blood we have access to God. So we don't have a holy place as Christians, as New Testament Christians. We don't have a holy place. But there is a group of people who have a holy place. And that group of people is the Jews. Then in verse 16, we find that it specifically mentions a geographic region. It says those who are in Judea. Um, So again, it's made very specific to a certain group of people. And again in verse 20, we we see it say, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. Now, do we celebrate the Jewish Sabbath? I don't know whether you do. I don't. Um, But um, but again, a specific Jewish reference. Lots of Jewish 
um, specific language in this passage. So it seems that a time is going to arise which, whilst it will affect the entire earth, is going to have a specific reference. It's going to occur in specific application to the Jewish people, people who are ethnically Jewish. Now, um, and what is interesting as well is that we see in this passage that the command is given to flee from this event, a physical command to flee. When you see the abomination of desolation set up, you need to flee from this, um, from this reality. You would think that, that if that was an important thing for us to be aware of as Christians, that that would be something that would be repeated throughout the epistles and throughout the New Testament. But what we find is that there is no command to do this really in the rest of the New Testament. There's no command for us to do this. So very specific language is used. Now, if we look at Jeremiah chapter 30 and verses 4 to 7, we learn something more about this future period which is going to occur. It says, Now these are the words that the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. For thus says the Lord, We have heard a voice of trembling, of fear and not of peace. Ask now and see whether a man is ever in labor with child. So why do I see every man with his hands on his loins, like a woman in labor, and all faces turn pale? Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it, and it is the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. So again, we see this unique time prophesied in the Old Testament, and we see that it has reference to Israel and the house of Judah, and we see that it is described as the time of Jacob's trouble. And along with the Jewish specific language we can see in this passage, we see that it has um, a particular reference to ethnic Israel. So, I know that all sounds very complicated, and I'm trying to just break it down. Um, So, So really, we've established three things. By asking these three questions, we've established three things about what this passage is talking about. We've established, A, that it seems to be speaking of future events. We've established, B, that those events appear to um, have a specific fulfillment. And we've established, C, that it would appear from the the language used uh, in the text um, and from other scriptures that it has a particular reference um, to the Jewish people. So now we've looked very broadly um, at, at an interpretive framework or a grid. I'm sorry about this, I know it sounds all a bit <laughs> complicated, but just so we can get a general understanding of what's happening here. But really, we do need to look at, to understand, I believe, um, what Jesus is, is talking about here, we do need to now turn to Daniel, Um, And we need to look at um, chapter 9. And this portion in Daniel chapter 9, it really gives what I believe is a prophetic key to understanding these future events. Now again, as I say, I want to be specific but not dogmatic. I just want to reiterate that. Specific but not dogmatic. But I do think that this particular prophecy in Daniel's 70 weeks has a reference to this. And I think that partly because of the simple fact that when we see the abomination of desolation mentioned, it's only mentioned in two other places, and two of those other places are in Daniel. So can you see, hopefully, where we're going with this? So if we look at um, verses 20 into 27, I'm going to read through it, and then we're going to just talk through it briefly together, okay? So Daniel, um, you remember Daniel has been in this uh, phase where he's been seeking the Lord and God really comes to him in the form of an angel and he brings him this special revelation, um, an unveiling of things which are to happen in the end times. And it says, Now while I was still speaking, praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication Before the Lord my God, for the holy mountain of my God. Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, 
reach me about the time of the evening offering. So David is, and David, Daniel is in this time of intensive prayer, intensive seeking of God, and God sends him an angelic messenger to reveal things that must come to pass. Um, And it says, and he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I've come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. It'd be lovely to have um, an angel tell you that, wouldn't it? You are greatly beloved. But of course, we're all greatly beloved by the Lord, aren't we? Amen. And he says, you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. So 70 weeks. The Hebrew word there um, is Shav I can't pronounce Hebrew. It's Shavuim, and it really means sevens. So what, de- what um, is said there is that 70 sevens are determined upon you and your people. 70 sevens. And we understand in the context that the seven, the sevens refers to a period of years. The seven refers to a period of years. 77 year blocks. In other words, 490 years. Very specific, isn't it? When we're looking at these things, but very interesting. Um, and he says, uh, we notice that the, uh, it says for your people and for your holy city. Again, who are the people of Daniel? They are the Jews, ethnic Israel, 70 years determined upon your people, the Jews. And then it goes on to tell us, really, what the purpose of God's program, what the purpose of these 70 weeks is. What is the purpose of it? And he says that the purpose of the 70 weeks is to finish transgression. It is to finish the transgression or the rebellion... The, in Hebrew, it's, the definite article is used. It's to finish the transgression or the rebellion. And what is the rebellion or the transgression? It is the rejection, the Jewish people's rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. Because you remember that Jesus came as a king to the Jews. He presented them the kingdom. He said, I am the king. And he was rejected at that time by the Jewish people. And to this day, the vast amount of the Jewish people reject Jesus as their Messiah. In fact, you'll remember that they said that upon us and upon our head, may his blood be upon us. And so there is that rejection um, of Jesus by the Jewish people. So that's the first purpose of this 70 weeks, to finish the transgression. And then secondly, it says to make an end of sins. There's several ways of interpreting that, but it's a cleansing of the people of Israel. And we know that the final point of this 70-week prophecy will be to usher in a period where Jesus physically reigns on the earth for a thousand years and that during that period, sin will be very much kept at bay. So to finish the transgressions, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation um, for iniquity. So it continues with that same idea. And then it says to cause, it says, well, to seal up vision and prophecy. In other words, to cause a cessation of prophecy, so to stop prophecy being necessary. When this 70-year period is, is fulfilled, there will now no longer be any need for the prophetic because everything will have come to pass. And then it says to anoint the most holy. And apparently, to anoint the most holy means the most holy place. It refers to a specific place. It refers to um, a temple which will be physically rebuilt in a future period where Jesus will reign from. So I'm just going to talk you through it because it is rather complicated. And if you're like me, I'm not terribly mathematical. I actually didn't do very well, um, a bit worryingly being a GP, but I didn't actually, I, did, I don't really have to count the drug doses. So um, generally speaking, um, uh, you know, someone like Fumi would do that. So she, she would count all the drug doses. So I don't have to be overly numerical. I just kind of decide what to prescribe, but not necessarily how much. Um, <laughs> but, <clears throat> but there are some numbers here. There are some numbers here. 
So if we look in verse 25, it says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem um, until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So when does this command refer to? Well, most scholars believe that it refers to 445 BC. So 445 BC, Artaxerxes, who was the king at that time, he gave a command to Nehemiah to rebuild, um, the, to rebuild Jerusalem, to rebuild the city. And so it says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven years and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. So there's two periods given here really. There's, there's an initial seven weeks, uh, which is a period of 49 years. And that is roughly the time, 49 years, that it took from when the command went out to rebuild Jerusalem in 445 BC. It took approximately 45 years to rebuild Jerusalem, to restore it. It then says that immediately, consecutive, immediately subsequent to that, there will be another 62 weeks. Now, 62 weeks, what does that equate to? 434 years. Um, so there'll immediately be another um, 434 years. So it gives you a total period of, I can't remember, 400 and something years. Um, this would be better if I was better with maths. Um, but basically it ends with the first coming of the Messiah. The first coming of the Messiah. And a lot of scholars, so there was a scholar called, I believe his name was Sir Robert Anderson, and he specifically looked into these figures and he found that the figures matched exactly. That from 445 BC, if you do the calculations, most scholars believe that it, it then comes out to about 32 AD, until Messiah the Prince. And that is the time when Jesus was revealed as king to the Jews in the triumphal, uh, triumphal entry. So, so it, it does correspond very accurately, which again is a testimony and to the promise-keeping of God and to um, his covenant. So it says really there that Messiah shall be cut off, but he won't be cut off for himself. So in other words, that speaks of the, the substitutionary death of Jesus. He'll be cut off, he'll be killed, but not for himself. He'll be killed and cut off for another, another people. And then it says, following that, it says, the people of the prince who is to come, the people of the prince who is to come. Now this, and it says that the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary and the end of it shall be with a flood. Now who are the people of the prince to come? Well again, hopefully you've got a handle on the history, AD 70 was when, um, was when uh, Jerusalem was levelled, it was flattened by the Romans in that time and the people of the prince to come is really speaking of the Roman people who took over Israel in AD 70 and they flattened um, Jerusalem. And, and it then talks about this other figure who we're going to introduce now, saying the people of the prince to come. So he's a prince who has not, he's a figure who has not yet appeared on the scene at this point. Um, and it suggests really that the prince to come is going to be of Roman origin and it's his people um, who have destroyed Israel. Now, I want to just talk to you a little bit about this prince to come. Um, and he is a figure who is, you know, sometimes I think, you know, it seems, are we just really clutching at straws? But actually, one of the things I think is very clear, and which we can be reasonably dogmatic on in, in, when it comes to all this, is that there will be a figure who will arise who will be uniquely empowered by Satan and he will come up and he will deceive many and he will raise his voice against the Most High, the Bible says, and he will utter blasphemies against them. So we see him described in Daniel chapter 7, verse 24, um, there's different pictures of this prince who are referred to throughout the Bible. So they should be on the screen, some of them behind me now, be a few slides. 
So in the first way, he's referred to as the little horn. It says, the ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom, and another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the first ones, and he shall subdue three kings. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, and shall intend to change times and law. And the saints will be given into his hand for time and times and half a time. Time, times, and half a time. It's the way the book of Revelation repeatedly speaks of, um, of the three, three and a half years, is what that really refers to. And then we see that not only is he a little horn, but also he is a king who is willful. He is a king who lifts up his voice in blasphemy against God and against, um, and against the people of God. It says um, in Daniel 11 verse 36, it says, Then the king shall do according to all his own will. He shall exalt and magnify himself against every god, shall speak blasphemies against the God of God, and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished, for what has determined has been done. We see him again referred to in the New Testament, um, which is, confirms that this is not just an Old Testament thing. We see that in the New Testament, he is referred to as the beast. Very clearly, it says, Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. So again, this figure is spoken of repeatedly throughout the Bible. But then carrying on, going back to Daniel, hope you can follow me, uh, then going back to Daniel, we've introduced this figure, um, uh, the, the prince to come, or the little horn, or the beast, or the willful king, all referring to one and the same person. And, and what, he, what we find that he does is that he makes a covenant. He appears to make a covenant or an agreement with the Jewish people. Um, and that he says in verse 27 that he will confirm a covenant with many for one week. But then it says, but in the middle of the week, he will bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. So he's going to confirm, it says there that this prince who is going to come, this antichrist figure, is going to make a covenant or an agreement with the Jewish people. And that's going to be an agreement, we believe, to offer them political protection um, in the future because we all know how under siege the nation of Israel is. It's been constantly um, attacked. It is surrounded by enemies on every hand. And so the Antichrist is going to step into the gap and he's going to make um, a covenant with them and he's going to say to them, I will offer you assistance, I will protect you, make an agreement with me. But unfortunately what happens is that in the middle of the week, so midway through this period, he breaks off that covenant and he brings an end, he, he, he brings an enforced end to the sacrifices that are happening in the temple. It says he shall bring an end to sacrifice and, and offering. And, you know, so, so the Antichrist, the, the deal that the Jews will make with the Antichrist turns out to be a deal with death. It turns out to be a deal which blows up in their face. And we read about this deal in Isaiah 28 and verse 15. And it says there, this is speaking of the Jewish people after they've made this covenant, it says, Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we are in agreement. When the overflowing scourge passes through, it will not come to us. For we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehood we have hidden ourselves. So it ends up that they've made a covenant with death. They've made a covenant with almost Satan himself, or certainly Satan empowered in the person of the Antichrist. Um, so now, sorry, after having gone through all of that, <laughs> we're now really in a position to look at the passage again. Uh, 
So, uh, so I'm sorry to go through that, but I think really it is impossible to understand what is going on in this passage without exploring some of the other, these other things. We just, it's impossible to do in any meaningful sense. So, um, so yes, yeah, so now we get to the abomination of desolation. And uh, it says in verse 15, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. And what appears to be happening with the abomination of desolation is that the Antichrist actually sets himself up and proclaims himself to be God in the temple. We see this again referred to in 2 Thessalonians 2 and verses 3 to 4. It says, let nobody deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or all that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing that he himself is God. So this is the abomination of desolation, I believe, not everyone would agree, um, but this is, I believe, the abomination of desolation which will be set up in the temple, in a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. This man who is going to come, who the scriptures speak so much of, he will, re, um, he will, he will do that. And there's really two phases to this abomination of desolation that's going to be set up. Firstly, he's going to proclaim himself as God. But we read about or what is hinted at at least, is a second phase to this abomination of desolation. And that is really a a supernaturally empowered image, empowered with the power of Satan, that will be set up in the temple and that people will worship. It talks about this in Revelation chapter 13 and verses 14 and 15. It says, He deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do, in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the face of the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the beast to be killed. So not only does the Bible talk about this abomination of desolation, but also historically, we see this prefigured as well. So, <clears throat> have any of you heard of Antiochus Epiphanes? <laughs> yeah, sorry, all raise your hands. <laughs> Such a well-known historical figure. Um, but basically, in BC 167, Antiochus Epiphanes, he was one of the last Greek kings, one of the Seleucid rulers, um, and he basically... Um, he was very, for some reason, he was very anti-Semitic. He hated the Jews. And he came into Jerusalem. And um, his name, actually, interestingly, Antiochus Epiphanes, it means God manifest. It means God manifest. So in, in, in BC 167, he came into the temple and he, he desecrated it. And he set up an altar to Zeus. This is historically uh, confirmed and documented. He set up a, um, an altar to Zeus um, in the, um, over the altar of burnt offerings in the Jewish sacrifice, and he slaughtered a pig so that the blood of the pig ran down the altar. Can you imagine anything more sacrilegious or that showed more contempt uh, for God? Never. But in him is prefigured what the Antichrist will one day do. So... <laughs> Um, so that is, that is really the abomination of, of desolation that we understand. Now, uh, we're going to go on quickly. Um, we're going to talk about the Great Tribulation. Now, this is referred to in verses 16 to 28. Now, going back to Daniel 9, which we've really used as, as a sort of a framework for understanding this, um, we see that the, the last week, when Antichrist um, confirms his covenant... Many Christians believe that the last week of that prophecy um, corresponds to the church age or to the age when, uh, when God is turning his attention away from primarily dealing with the Jewish people and, and, and to the church. So it's as though Israel, in a sense, 
from that Daniel uh, 70s week passage, it appears to be that Israel is God's prophetic time clock. So there's so the, the prophecy in uh, Daniel refers to the time up to the first coming of Christ and the fall of Jerusalem. And then we don't see the second uh, period set of events about the Antichrist coming and confirming the covenant. We don't believe that that has been fulfilled as yet. So why is there this gap? Why does there appear to be this gap in God's prophetic dealings? Why does it all not just follow one after the other? And the reason for that, I believe, really, is us. Um, as strange as that may sound, it is us. God is turning his attention away from primarily the Jewish people to his church. We have to understand that the church is not a reality which was made known in the Old Testament. Jesus, as the Messiah, was prophesied as the coming one, as the future hope. But the church was not made explicitly clear in the Old Testament as the bride of Christ, as the way we know it, born um, at the day of Pentecost. Because it says, Paul says, doesn't he, in Ephesians 1 and verse 10, he says, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather in all, one all things in Christ, both which are on, in heaven and are on earth. So this is the church. The church is revealed, the church is made manifest in the New Testament. But primarily, as you remember when we're looking at Daniel's prophecy, it repeatedly says that 70 weeks is determined upon your people. And it seems that this is referring again to Israel. So what we see happening um, at, the, at, the, at this time when Antichrist is, is revealed in verse 15, we then see that there's going to be this massive persecution against the Jewish people so that they are going to have to flee as soon as they can, literally for their lives, they're going to have to flee out of Jerusalem. It says, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who's on the housetop not go down and take anything out of himself. So there's an urgency at this time period the pressure is really going to be on. And if they do not flee at this time, they are going to be um, destroyed. They're going to be wiped out because um, the Antichrist um, has now been revealed. Now, um, if we look very briefly um, at Revelation and chapter 12. So if you just turn with me to Revelation and chapter 12. We seem to have... And again, I don't want to be one of these people who's completely dogmatic, but we seem to have what is an allusion there to this time of Israel being persecuted. We seem to have an allusion at least to Israel being persecuted. If you look at Revelation chapter 12, it says, A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Now, if we're going to be consistent with, our, um, with the, sim- the, the symbology which is used in the scripture, you remember that Joseph, when he had the vision of his brothers, um, he had a vision of 12 stars there, basically. And the 12 stars is basically a picture of the 12 tribes of Israel. That appears to be the most um, biblically consistent way to interpret this. Um, and uh, we see um, there that the red dragon, this fiery red dragon, he draws a third of the stars of heaven down to the earth. And it says that the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God in in his throne. Then it says, then the woman fled into the wilderness. The woman fled into the wilderness. Can you see the link? We've been speaking about Israel. We've been speaking about Israel given a command to flee after the abomination. And then it says that she's to flee Israel. What appears to be a picture of Israel is to flee into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her and their 1,260 days. So it appears that, that this refers to the flight of, of, of the Jews from Jerusalem at this period of unprecedented um, uh, persecution. Um, now, this is 
now we really are into the fields of slightly more speculation when I say this. And, but there is some speculation <coughs> that the period, that the place, the destination that the Jews will flee to after Antichrist um, drives them out of um, Jerusalem is going to be around the Petra area. Um, and there are a couple of reasons for thinking this biblically. <coughs> um, one of the reasons is that obviously it mentions the mountains, flee to the mountains. If you've ever been to Petra or seen pictures of it, it's this kind of fortress, um, you know, that red kind of stone, and it's in, in a sort of a fortress in the cliffs, in the mountains, and it speaks here about fleeing to the mountains. And the other reason for that is that Petra um, corresponds to the region of Bosra, and Bosra is mentioned in a couple of Old Testament prophecies, that it appears at this place in the desert that the Jews uh, will go to. We can't be dogmatic, but it may well be what is modern-day Petra. Um, it says in Micah 2 and verse 12, he says, I will surely assemble, O Jacob, all of you. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together as the sheep of Bosra, as a flock in the midst of their pasture. They shall make great noise by reason of the multitude of men. And also, just as a point of interest, um, there are other prophecies that suggest that the Antichrist will never enter the area of modern Jordan. Because when it's talking about the Antichrist in 11, <coughs> Daniel 11, verse 41, it says that he shall enter also into the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown, but these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab and the chief of the children of Ammon. So we see in uh, verse 23 and 24 that um, that that it seems that there are going to be these claims of a Messiah, of a false Messiah, um, at, the, uh, at this time, of the abomination. At the time of the abomination, there's going to be claims of, of false Christs and false prophets, and an attempt is going to be made to lure the Jewish people out of their place of hiding. So we're now going to turn on to the third reality, and then I really do want to get on to some um, application, because I realise it has been quite um, complicated. Um, so the third, and the, uh, the third reality that we want to look at is um, in verses 29 um, to 30. Um, and it says there that um, immediately after the tribulation of these days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. So it seems that there's going to be a cosmic or a worldwide blackout, that everything is going to go dark. The lights are going to go off just immediately before Jesus comes back. Imagine how terrifying that would be. Um, everything, the, the stars will cease to give their light. We also have this um, referred to in the book of Joel, um, chapter 3. It's, it talks about um, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. The sun and moon will grow dark and the stars will diminish their brightness. And then it talks about the Lord being a shelter for his people, the people of Israel. So there's going to be a cosmic blackout. There's going to be a, the lights are going to go off just before the second coming, and then there's going to be an absolute blackout. And then it says in verse 30 that the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. What is the sign of the Son of Man? We don't absolutely know, but in the context of the blackness, it may well be that the sign of the Son of Man is simply a physical manifestation of his glory. The blazing glory of the Son of Man. Jesus, the light of the world, as he returns to earth, that everyone will see this light, this brightness, piercing through the darkness. And won't that be wonderful? Um, so then, yes, we see in verse 31, we see that um, he sends his angels with the sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Now, um, <clears throat> if it hasn't been uh, confusing and sort of slightly controversial enough um, already, we are going to look at another um, issue briefly, which I don't want to labour on, but I think, again, it is inescapable that we have to at least uh, think about this area. Um, it's an area we cannot be dogmatic on, um, but it is, it's, it's, an, it's an issue really that concerns us more. Where do we fit in as Christians into this whole schema? Because in some ways it can seem very abstract. You know, it almost seems as though I've said, 
I believe a lot of it is future. I believe a lot of it does have a, a prophetic relevance to the Jewish people. But how does it fit into us, the church? How does it fit in with us? So there's a hugely controversial um, question, which is really, <clears throat> are the rapture of the church, is the rapture of the church and the second coming of Jesus, are they the same event or not? Now that is a hugely controversial issue. And personally, I don't believe that the scriptures are 100% crystal clear on that issue. And I do have a view which I think that the scriptures would perhaps point to, and that's probably as, as dogmatic as I'm going to be. But I'm going to just briefly share with you both of those views and the reasons why people um, would believe in both of them. I, first, I personally, particularly after looking at this, would lean towards the first view, um, but I'm just going to share that with you. And then I really do want to just briefly mention some application as well. Um, so I'm going to do this very, very quickly, okay? Um, so so why, why would people think that the, the, the rapture and the second coming are two separate events? Why would people think that? Well, they would think that because there is a gap, as we've already discussed, in Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy. And it seems that God is primarily dealing with the Jewish people within that period before he then goes on again to deal with the church. So in a sense, what would the purpose of the church be being here? It seems that God is then entering into a phase where he's specifically dealing with the Jewish people again. Secondly, we have two things to reconcile in the Bible, two things the Bible tells us about the coming of Jesus. Firstly, Jesus often seems to say you don't know when it will be and that it's going to be imminent at any time. And then second, Jesus also says, seems to say things, well, look for the signs and when you see the signs, you almost know that it's going to happen. They're two very difficult things to reconcile. Um, so, so we have verses like, Watch therefore, for you do not know the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. And then you also have, so you also, when you see all these things, that it is near, know that it is near at the doors. So how, do we, how can both those things be true? One of the answers is that Jesus returns unexpectedly for his church and that the second coming, there are more signs that precede that coming. That's not the only way of dealing with that tension or that problem, but that is a way of dealing with it. um, Thirdly, there do appear to be some differences between the way that the rapture and the glorious appearing or the second coming are described. So if you look at 2 Thessalonians, you will see that the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel. It talks about the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall be always with the Lord. Whereas if we look at descriptions of the second coming, we see that Jesus is going to actually touch down on the earth to the Mount of Olives that it will cleave into. into. And so we see that there are some kinds of differences in the way that those events are described. We see that Jesus comes with his saints um, at the rapture, whereas he more comes to kind of, it seems, collect them. Uh, Sorry, vice versa. Um, And we see that the church is not mentioned in Revelation between chapters 4 and chapters 19. The church is no longer mentioned. You remember in verses chapters 1 to 3, The church is repeatedly mentioned in those chapters, but there's a complete absence of the church being mentioned between chapters 4 and chapter 19. And you remember that that Jesus um, also promises um, to the faithful church, the church in Philadelphia. He says, because you have kept my command, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. The other issue connected with that is that in many ways the tribulation is the pouring out of God's wrath. Again, there's some disagreement over exactly which parts of uh, the period are the pouring out of God's wrath. But we know that all of the seal judgments ultimately emanate from the Lamb because the Lamb is the one who opens those judgments. And we know that Jesus is the one, it says, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. So that is one way of understanding these things with the, with the rapture preceding the, um, the second coming. It is the view that I would happen to lean towards. It is the view that is probably the preferred view um, among the group of churches we're associated with. But there are also other very strong views 
and particularly some people see the two events, the rapture and the second coming, as really synonymous. Because they would, they would rightly say that, um, that 1 Thessalonians 4.17 doesn't seem to be describing a secret rapture because there is a trumpet which is blown and they would say, how can a trumpet be secret? So that's, that's another, you may well agree with that. Um, some people would say that the pre-tribulational rapture is a theory which appeared later in church history uh, with, with uh, John Darby. Um, against that is, um, is the view that um, if you look in the church fathers, you can see that many of them did believe in an imminent return of Jesus. Some people say the pre-trib rapture is an inference from several passages, all of which can be disputed, which again is a fair point. It's not absolutely crystal clear. Um, and some people would say that the pre-trib rapture is just escapism, that we're trying to escape the earth before all these things happen. So I don't know what you believe. Um, I would urge you to, these things are worth looking into, um, but I would urge you just to seek the Lord and just see which view you feel fits in more with the scriptures, with the scriptures we've been looking at um, and, with the, and with the chapter. So going back to the passage, we'll just finish um, with uh, verses uh, 32 to uh, 35. So Jesus there really speaks about the fig tree, and he talks about the fig tree blossoming and becoming tender. So really, just as in the way that trees follow cyclical patterns, if you know anything about horticulture, they follow cyclical patterns, Jesus says that whenever these things happen, whenever they, they start to happen, you know that the summer is near, that the time for these things has come to be near. So, so as I say, <clears throat> I'm sorry if that seemed a bit um, intensive and a bit kind of really grappling with it, but I did feel that, you know, I think it is important to do justice to the text. Um, and also, as I said, I think that when we look at these specifics, regardless of whether we completely agree on the specifics, it makes us realise that these are real, literal events that are due to transpire in the future and that the time for them happening is becoming more and more imminent. And so we need to be ready for those things. We need to be ready. That's the big message. We need to be ready. However we see the specifics, we need to be ready for those things. So just some brief um, applications. First of all, prophecy is worthy of our attention. We spoke um, about that at the beginning of the message. Prophecy is worthy of our attention. You know, when I was preparing for this, the difficulties of wrestling with it all were almost so overwhelming that it made you just think, you know, really, what's the point in a sense? In a sense. But what I've realized is, is that looking into the specifics of these things, it makes the realities seem more real. It makes the reality seem more real. And next, it tells us about the character of God. Fulfilled prophecy speaks to us about God's character, that he is a God who keeps covenant. God says in Amos, he says, surely God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. So again, it speaks to us about the, the, the character of God. And again, understanding that these realities are coming and and understanding about the character of God, it should really motivate us to three key things. It should motivate us to um, prayer, to holy living, and to evangelism. Um, And my second application, really, is a bit of a get-out clause, really. And that is really that it is unwise to be overly dogmatic in our conclusions. I've presented to you this morning what appears to be the best fit. It appears to make the most sense of of Revelation, Daniel, and all of what we know about the last things. But I can't claim to be here as an authority. I've studied it probably a lot less than a lot of other people. I can't claim that I am infallible and I've got absolute knowledge because I just haven't, basically. Um, And I have at various times thought differently about these things. Um, So it is very unwise to be overly dogmatic about our conclusions, but we shouldn't ignore these matters either. If we are overly dogmatic in our conclusions, the Bible talks about the dire consequences that can come from that. It says in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 23, it says, 
Avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. And another thing I want to say is that love is more important than having all of our doctrinal I's dotted and our T's crossed. So whilst we need to wrestle with the text, and whilst we mustn't be evasive in handling the Bible, um, we have to remember the priority of love. Because, you know, sometimes when we think of what the Antichrist is, the Antichrist is everything which is anti-God. And the Bible tells us that the spirit of Antichrist is already at work in the world. And one of the characteristics of the spirit of Antichrist is that the spirit of Antichrist is anti-love because God is love. And that's one of the key. So even what Satan can do is can trick us to um, getting too kind of intensive or too dogmatic about these things. And what we end up doing is we end up exhibiting more the spirit of the Antichrist because the fruit of the spirit is love. So let all that you do be done with love. And then the Bible says that knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And regardless of the view that we take on these things, regardless of, the, regardless of whether we're raptured before the tribulation, after the tribulation, even if you're amillennial, um, the key to our deliverance is Jesus. It's not an interpretation of scripture. The key to our deliverance is Jesus. It's not, um, it's not an interpretation of Jesus. So whether we're all, we've all got judgment coming. We all need Jesus to deliver us from the wrath to come. Now, whether that judgment which is coming is partly the tribulation or whether it's an eternity in hell, the fact is that we need to be in Jesus. You know, I'm sure John's going to talk next week about um, as it was in the time of Noah and the flood came and it took them all away um, into judgment. The flood came, it took them all away into judgment. The reality is, is that however you view these things, it's only in Jesus, it's only in the ark of Jesus that we can be safe and secure and that we can be delivered from the reality of these things to come. Um, and so I just want to leave you with a verse uh, from Titus and it says, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might deliver us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. So, so the key application is, although you know, I think it is worthy of our, our time and it's profitable to look into these things, the key application is, are we sheltering in Jesus this morning? <clears throat> are we in him? Because only as we are in him are we safe from the wrath to come.